Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. We're finishing up this section here, this portion here in Exodus, before Moses stands before Pharaoh and in the courts of the Egyptians. So if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that they will not let the people, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Moses, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met with him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. A strange thing happens when you become a Christian you start doing this thing called serving God. I'm not sure there is anything quite like this in the world. Certainly, there are professions where your job is to serve. You might think about a waiter or a nurse or a police officer. But when someone becomes a Christian, they're not called into a profession. They are called into a lifetime of serving the Lord. Walk into some Christian homes, and you might see a little plaque there in the home that says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, there are all sorts of reasons for this service, and the Bible makes clear 
serving God is not because God needs our help. God is not placing a help-wanted ad saying, hey, come and help me so that I can make sure that all these things can happen in this world for my kingdom purposes. Nor is serving God to earn his favor. It's not something where we say, hey, you know, if I do enough good things, God will be pleased with me and he'll bless me. And service is certainly not to pay back God, not to say, oh, God, you've done so much for me. I know I can't pay it back, but let me see what I can do for you. But the Bible makes clear that all genuine Christians do serve God because when they know him and love him, there is a spring-loaded joy in the heart that overflows into service in such a way that Christians live and act and have their being in Christ. But serving God is just not easy. It's no simple matter. When Christians make up their minds to serve the Lord and follow him in whatever calling he has on their lives, a long road awaits. One must be prepared to serve. I don't know if you know, but Foster the City is having this whole Spartan race thing, and people in our church are starting to sign up for that Spartan race. And uh, maybe some of you have been cajoled into it. Uh, after much prodding, you know, people are saying, oh, you're to do this race. And after a series of objections, maybe, maybe five of them or something, you start objecting and say, oh, I can't do it. And then finally you say, okay, I'm going to do it. I sign up for the race. But you probably need to do some training before you go. And you probably need to show up in December when it happens. And you probably not only need to have your foot on the starting line, you probably need to get going. And this is kind of what we see here this morning at the end of Exodus 4. We see Moses deciding to serve the Lord. He has set his foot on the starting line. Yet there are still a few preparatory lessons that are in store for him that he must go through as a servant of God and lessons that we must learn as we desire to serve the Lord. So turn with me in your Bibles. You're going to need to follow along in as we look through these few verses here, beginning in verse 18. Now, by the time we come to verse 18, Moses has already left the burning bush. Earlier in chapter 3 and 4, God called Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And after a series of five objections and then five promise-filled and patient responses from God, Moses at last submits himself to God's call. After all his questions and objections and his doubts and outright refusal to go, he says, okay, I'll do it. He ends his self-imposed exile, obeys the Lord, trusts him, and goes. Now, in the rest of chapter 4, this really is a narrative that takes us from Moses and his departure from Midian and his travel back to Egypt. It's just a few verses that take us all the way there. And it talks about, you know, him starting out his journey and what happens when he first arrives back in Egypt. And it's really a transition passage into chapter 5, which will begin this showdown with Pharaoh. But on the way from Midian to Egypt, God has three lessons for Moses and us about what it means to serve him. 
three lessons about what it means to serve God. And the first thing we see in these opening paragraphs is that we have to serve for God's glory and not ease. We are to serve for God's glory and not ease. In verse 18, Moses obtains his release from his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, you might think it's strange that he has to do this. I mean, he's 80 years old. He has his own family. But remember that Moses was actually employed by Jethro as a shepherd for him. Also, I think this may have been a way of honoring his father-in-law rather than just running off to Egypt and taking Zipporah and the two children in the middle of the night. Now, some say that Moses was not being completely truthful with Jethro because in reality, Moses was not just going to see if his kinsmen were still alive, but he's starting almost this mass exodus out of a nation. So some suggest that Moses is stuck between belief and unbelief, and he's embarrassed to tell Jethro what he's really going to do. But I'm not entirely convinced of that, uh, that interpretation. It seems to me that Moses was responding with some curious, courteous, not curious, but courteous discretion within the bounds of truth. I don't think he was going to go up to Jethro and say, well, let me tell you what happened while I was shepherding the sheep. You know, there was this burning bush and a theophany of God was there. And this God, he's the Lord of the universe, this God that you don't actually follow. And he's told me to go back to Egypt to free out these two million slaves from under Pharaoh. And by the way, he gave me a stick to do all these magical powers, you know, or whatever it is, right? I think Moses' language is basically politely informing and seeking a blessing to go from his father-in-law. He's saying, I'm going back to my own people in Egypt. You know why I'm here. I have some unfinished business out in Egypt, and I'm going to go. And I'm taking Zipporah. I'm taking the kids. And Jethro, in a response that might shame even some Christian parents, says, just go in peace to this dangerous duty that Moses has. Now, before he goes on his way, the Lord gives Moses a word of assurance. He says, go back to Egypt for all the men who, are, who were seeking your life are dead. And Pharaoh, we learned in chapter 2, has died. And it appears that all the people involved with the manhunt over Moses has also died uh, as well. So Moses gathers up his family, takes the staff of God in his hands, and heads out the door. Now, on his return to Egypt, the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, when you go back to Egypt, you see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, if you've been following along in our exposition through Exodus, you know that that some of this doesn't really come as a surprise. We know that Pharaoh will be stubborn. That's already been told to us. And we know that he has this power with this, with God's staff And we know that he could do this. But what's surprising is that the same signs that Moses was going to perform, signs that are intended to cause belief in the elders of Israel and the people of Israel, would serve to actually harden uh, Pharaoh's heart. Would, Would serve to harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, God tells Moses to perform the same signs for Pharaoh, not so that he will let his people go, but for exactly the opposite reason. Rather than making a believer out of Pharaoh, the signs would harden him in unbelief. 
God says, you've got Aaron. You've got your staff. I will be with you. And Moses, Pharaoh will not believe a word you say. I'll make sure of that. Now, you have to wonder how Moses felt about this. He's being sent to Egypt, and God doesn't say, your first encounter with Pharaoh will be very difficult. It's going to be a hard one. No, he says, I want you to speak to him, and I want you to know ahead of time that it won't work. (laughs) It's not going to work. You're going to have to do it several more times, like 10 times. And look at verse 22 and 23. God says, Moses, you will warn Pharaoh about the most painful plague, a son for a son. God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my treasured possession. The one on whom I have set all my affection. And Pharaoh says, you, and he says to Pharaoh, you've enslaved my son. You've persecuted and mistreated my son. And if you will not let my son go, I will withhold your son from you as well. This is the first time we are introduced to the theme of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We'll see it in upcoming chapters, and I'll have a chance to address it more later in Exodus, Lord willing. But for now, know that there are 18 times in Exodus where it talks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes it refers to God doing the hardening. Sometimes it refers to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And sometimes it refers in the passive sense, meaning it's happening to Pharaoh, but we don't know who's doing the co- what's the cause. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, clearly, God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. And yet it does not remove Pharaoh's own personal responsibility and culpability. And we do well to remember that this divine hardening by God is according to a proud heart, not in opposition to a humble heart. We're not to think, poor Pharaoh, you know, he just loves Yahweh. He just really loves Israel, and he really wants to let the people go. He really wants to listen to Yahweh. And, well, you know, God says, no, uh-uh, not for you. That's not what's going on here. Pharaoh is hardening his heart, and God is promising to harden his heart. Now, all of this is part of God's plan to make known his glory among the nations. God's purpose in multiplying his wonders in in, in Egypt in this exodus is to make his name known for him, for God to be glorified by Israel, by Egypt, and the world. And so turn with me, just kind of previewing Exodus a little bit, to a couple places in Exodus. Turn to chapter 9, verse 16. Exodus 9:16 It says, "But for this purpose I have raised you up, raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth." Now, turn over to maybe one page over to chapter 10 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And then it says, That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt 
with the Egyptians. Skip over to chapter 11, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And one more, chapter 14, verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. In other words, God's plan was for his glory, not for the ease of Moses. And I think when we're looking at these verses in chapter 4, we must remember, Christian, that serving God will not be easy, and yet it is for his glory. Somehow we get this mistaken notion that serving God should be easy. I mean, shouldn't God make the path easy for us? But it isn't, because serving God means serving with all our weaknesses. It means serving God with all our sinful propensities. It means serving him with humility. It means serving him where your feeling is that, God, you can do whatever you want with my life. My, ha- my life is in your hands. Whatever you do is right. Serving the Lord means tears. It could mean tears from physical pain, heart-rending loss, or discouragements. I mean, when you get intensely involved in other people's struggles for faith and hope and truth, There's just no easy button. No easy button. But in the task of serving God, when we serve in the strength that God supplies, in a moment by moment, receiving from the Lord as we serve, God will get the glory. And it will be thrilling and joyous for us and magnify our God. Second lesson we see in this passage is serve with integrity, not hypocrisy. Serve with integrity, not hypocrisy. Look at verses 24 through 26. It's this strange little paragraph in your Bibles. Uh, And it's one of those passages in your Bible reading plan that when you kind of get to it, you kind of read it, and then you're like, this is confusing, I don't understand what it's about, and I hope one day somebody's going to explain it to me. And if you're here this morning ready to receive the final answer about what these verses mean, I will be disappointing you this morning because there are so many questions about this text. For example, whom does God seek to put to death? In verse 24, it says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Who's the him? Some think it actually refers to Moses' son is to be put to death, either Gershom or Eleazar, because contextually we've been talking about what? God's son, Pharaoh's son, and now Moses' son. Because Moses' son was not circumcised, disobedient to the covenant, God was going to kill him. Now, most commentators don't follow that line of thinking. I tend to agree with them because... All along so far in Exodus, and even after this, it is almost exclusively talking about Moses. 
for him, for the son to somehow make this very important appearance seems not, seems out of the blue. The surrounding text referred to Moses. And so I do think that Moses is the him here and that God is seeking to kill Moses. But another confusing thing about this text is when Zipporah circumcises her son. In verse 25, it says, she touched Moses' feet with it. And we're like, ew. And there's a question as to whether feet here are really feet. Because sometimes in Hebrew, the, it's a euphemism for sexual organs. So in some passages of the Old Testament, the word feet can refer to male or female sexual organs. So did Zipporah simply place this foreskin at his feet or did she throw it in Moses' lap? And there's also the question about Zipporah. What's going on with her? I mean, why is this Gentile woman performing circumcision? And when she uses that phrase, bridegroom of blood, what does she mean? Is she saying this out of disgust and revulsion? Is she like, ugh, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. I can't believe you made me go through this grotesque operation. Or is this a term of endearment? Now, I know it doesn't sound like a term of endearment, but perhaps it's a phrase like, you're a bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Is the poor saying, instead of taking you from me, God has given you back to me because of the blood of circumcision. You are my bridegroom of blood. I love you. All sorts of ambiguities around this passage, but here's the point that I think is very clear. Moses has not been faithful to keep the covenant. We see this covenant of circumcision back in Genesis 17. 17 verse 10. You don't have to turn there, but it is, I'm going to read you this, quite, this fairly long passage. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in the flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's the warning from Genesis. The covenant warning. If you do not receive the sign of circumcision, you will be cut off. Moses was setting out to lead the covenant community of God's people, and yet he did not obey the most basic of commandments. And so God's anger is kindled against Moses. Because although the exodus may have been a job for someone with a speech impediment, it was not a job for someone with an obedience impediment. Moses is old. He'd get nervous if he ever had to give a testimony. He doesn't feel like he can speak kind of realizes he has a sketchy past. He's embarrassed about it. All those things, though, God says, I can use all of those things in my hands, but not hypocrisy. 
God says, you must be a person of integrity or I will find someone else. Now, what is the solution to Moses' hypocrisy? Let's take a look one more time at this passage in Exodus 4 and consider the context. This is what I think is going on here. Moses has just been told to warn Pharaoh that his firstborn son may be killed because Israel is God's firstborn son. But Moses' own son has not been circumcised, which is the non-negotiable mark of divine sonship for Israel. Moses has neglected God's commandment and now stands outside the mark of sonship under the same judgment as Pharaoh, actually. His son may be killed. So not for the first time, a woman comes to the aid of Moses, I think, courageously. Zipporah circumcises their son, puts the blood on display, and covers Moses with it so that the, so that the Lord will not kill Moses. You could say she applies the blood of the circumcision to Moses' own body so that it is credited to his account. Everyone stands under the same judgment, Egyptian or Hebrew, unless sacrificial blood is applied to them. And so there is a sense that when I'm reading this passage, Moses is almost having his personal Passover that is to come later in Exodus. But church, I believe this is a serious warning to us when we serve the Lord. There has to be a sifting in our lives and an abandonment of what is impure. Isaiah 52, 11 says, Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, because the fruit of the Spirit is always more important than the gifts of the Spirit. Godly integrity is more important than a sense of calling, a passion for God's people, is no excuse to neglect your own family. God can use our weaknesses, inability and skill and and our tarnished past, but we should not think that somehow God will continue to use our sins. As if we say, well, you know, God made me this way, or since I'm useless, I'm weak, I'll just keep on sinning, that grace may increase, and we would say what? May it never be. Don't say, I'll keep getting angry, I'll keep watching porn, I'll keep being a bad husband. God loves to save us from sin. God loves to forgive our sin. He loves to put the sin in the past so that we can serve him continually. But a calling is not an excuse to be compromised. It's like what the Scottish pastor Robert Murray Machane once said, what my people need from me most is my what? My holiness. And this is what parents, moms, dads, this is what your children need most from you in your calling as a parent. They need your holiness to lead and nurture your family with integrity and not compromise. Doctors, direct reports, teachers, students, that's what the hospitals and and schools need from you. Your personal holiness and your walk of integrity with the Lord. So after the service, take a trusted friend aside. Take your spouse aside and ask them that question that you never want to ask, which is, where do I compromise? What do you see in my life where I compromise? Ask one another in your small groups. Take the, and, and when you hear what you hear, take those sins, confess them to the Lord. Turn to Christ who is our ultimate Passover lamb and says, you are washed clean from those. And God says, I will not remember them anymore. 
and then go and serve the Lord. And then go and serve the Lord. First, serve God for God's glory, not ease. Second, serve with integrity, not hypocrisy. And third, serve in trust, not worry. Serve in trust, not worry. And the remaining verses of chapter 4 are really compact, quite terse if you're looking at it. It doesn't really belabor any of the events. But I think there are a few things that we can glean from verses 27 to 31. Notice all the action. Verse 27, Aaron meets Moses in the wilderness. Verse 28, Aaron tells, Moses tells Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs they had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron get to Egypt in verse 29, and it, they do it. They gather the people of Israel, and Aaron speaks on behalf of Moses. And then finally in verse 31, what? The people believe and they worship. Everything goes according to promise. Everything's going according to promise. Remember how anxious Moses was? Remember in chapter 4, he says, I can't speak. I'm not good at it. And God says, I'll give you Aaron. You've got Aaron. He's already coming out to meet you. And when he meets you, he'll be glad in heart. And then you're going to speak to him. And you're going to put the words in his heart. And lo and behold, what happens? Aaron shows up and he gives him a sloppy wet kiss. <laughs> he hugs him. He's glad. And he acts as Moses' mouthpiece. Early in chapter 3, God said to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel and tell them this about me, that, that Yahweh is coming and he is, and he is going to save. And Moses says what? They're not going to listen to me. They're not. God, they're not going to listen to my voice. And wouldn't you know it, the people believed. The text doesn't indicate, well, the text does show that more than one sign was given. So there is some kind of unbelief happening here. They had to do multiple signs. But the Lord had anticipated the people's unbelief and ultimately they bowed their heads and worshiped. I think it's worth noticing how little space the Bible devotes to the meeting with the elders, especially when compared with the amount of time Moses spent worrying about the meeting beforehand. Phil Riken comments, the prophet's fears turned out to be ill-founded as fears always are when they come from failure to trust God's word. In spite of all of his misgivings, Moses had no trouble persuading the Israelites to believe the good news of their deliverance. To put it in layman's terms, Moses was freaked out over nothing, right? Moses needed to mature. He needed to be refined and shaped, and he needed to learn that God could be trusted. This is a fitting way to end this section in Exodus because chapters 3 and 4 has all been about trusting God. We are to trust God because he is holy and he is compassionate. We are to trust God because he is the I am. He is Yahweh. We are to trust God because he always provides for his people. As his servants, we are to trust and not worry. For as Jesus said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And there are so many worries in this world. And many of us try to live out the future before it gets here. 
And that's what anxiety is, isn't it? Trying to live out the future before it comes. You go through in your mind all the bad things, all the bad things that could happen to you or your family or your friends. And it's paralyzing. It keeps you from coming to church. It keeps you from taking that job. It keeps you from serving. And you know what? Sometimes you get into those incidents and it's actually worse than you imagined. Your child gets chronically sick. You lose your savings. Your friends disown you. But what if it's worse? You never think, well, that was so much worse than I expected, but at least I worried. And we must admit that often it's not nearly as bad as we feared. My children worry and worry when it comes, when we say it's time to get the vaccine. I mean, the flu vaccine. Okay. They worry and worry about getting that flu vaccine. And then when they get it, they're like, oh, that was like nothing. That's not a big deal. And sometimes we get ourselves all worked up over a situation and we waste our lives in worry. God wants us to fight spiritually and physically that we might trust his sovereign, all-wise, all-good, all-providing, all-protecting, ever-assisting care. Trust the Lord. Church, let us go and serve the Lord trusting him all the way and all along the way, may we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. May we look to Christ, who for the glory of God did not come to be served. May we look to Christ, who in perfect integrity knew no sin, but for our sake became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. May we look to Christ who trusted, who trusted his Father, and for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, are, we give thanks to you for all the ways in which you are training us even now. We pray that we would be servants that please you with our Uh, our attitudes and our hearts. We pray uh, during times of when it becomes difficult to serve, that we would serve in a way that would show that we are leaning upon upon your strength and that you would be magnified. We would pray that we would serve in a way that would exalt you and show that it is a thrilling thing to do what we were created to do, which is to serve you wholeheartedly with every fiber of our being. And we pray that Christ would be displayed in all our serving, that it would be made obvious by the way we live and move and have our being that we are in Christ, united to him by faith and for your glory. Cleanse us from our, give us eyes to see and cleanse us from our hypocrisies, from our sins, all the different ways in which we have refused to acknowledge those hidden sins. May we bring them to light 
bring them before you and trust that the shed blood of Christ covers those sins, that we might serve you with integrity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.